peace be with you, and welcome to The Word Unveiled. Our program is Mary Magdalene, Scripture, Legend, Tradition, and History. As in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious and most merciful God, give us ears to hear your words, a mind to comprehend your meaning, and hearts that will allow your word to take root in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, Scripture is the Word of God, written by men and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is always true. Now, that doesn't mean it's scientifically or historically or every little way passing every test. Sometimes it's allegorical. Sometimes it's, it, it conveys a meaning, and the truth of the meaning is what's important. Now, legend is a story that really has no basis in fact. It might be believed by some, and it's often shared by others. You've all heard of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, but that doesn't mean there was ever a headless horseman. Then tradition is an officially undocumented story, which has many sources that corroborate it. There are many physical, archaeological evidence as well. Heinrich Schliemann, when he found the city of Troy, went by what was read, what was written rather, in the Iliad, and he found that there actually was a city of Troy, and there actually was a battle there. So tradition can sometimes be true, even if we don't know the details. And then history is the officially documented and agreed upon events that are generally believed to have happened and are documented. Okay, so our story begins at the first Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes 10 days after the ascension of our Lord. The apostles and the believers are energized to carry out the word, carry out the great commission to go and teach all nations. Peter and John go to Samaria. Disciples form in Antioch. Saul becomes Paul, and the word begins to spread. Well, James the Greater, James, that is, the brother of John, is reported to have journeyed by sea to the Roman province of Iberia, which was which we now call Spain. And he establishes a mission in the northwest part of that land called Santiago de Compostelo. Santiago means St. James. And he returns to Judea and then becomes the target of the Jews. Well, this is the route that he must have taken. He would have gone by sea, past Rome, landed on the east shore of of Iberia, then traveled overland until he came to the northwest part of the country and there established Santiago de Compostelo. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Well, the persecution of the Christians was ramped up about this time, around 44 AD. Um, The uh, followers of Christ had been growing in numbers for 10 years. Even some of the priests of the Sanhedrin had become converts. So the rest of the priests of the Sanhedrin complained to the Tetrarch, the local king, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa wasn't a Jew. He was propped up by the Romans who kept him in power. But he wanted to be more friendly toward the Jews. He wanted their support. So he saw an opportunity to draw them closer to him by conceding to their wishes. So he had James arrested, and we don't know why he picked James. We don't know. It's because James had just returned from Spain, and that was somehow uh, the news of the day. But he had James arrested, and to appease the Jews, he had James beheaded. Well, the followers of Jesus then 
for the most part, went underground to escape imminent annihilation. Which brings us to the tradition of this story. And I'll call it the tradition, the first part. And this maintains that Mary Magdalene, along with her siblings and others, journeyed to a Provincia Romana, that's the south of France, and, and this legend begins in the second half of the first century. So who are the people involved? Well, we know Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, uh, the brother and two sisters, and we know Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. So he would be a notable figure. And if the Jews are looking to persecute the followers of Jesus, he might be somebody they'd look uh, to try to arrest and execute. So they probably were threatened by this new development after the beheading of James. So the tradition tells us they decide to leave Judea. Now, some legends say that the Jews set them adrift without sails or oars. I personally find that a little bit unlikely, and for these reasons, the Jews, when they brought Jesus to the Romans, said, we have no law to put a man to death. What they really wanted to do is they wanted Jesus executed publicly as a humiliation and as a, a warning, if you will, to Jesus's followers. Because a few years after that, they stoned the, the deacon Stephen to death without worrying about whether it's legal or not. So they probably could have stoned Martha, Lazarus, and Mary to death simply by going to their home. They would not probably have arrested them, taken them, put them in a boat without sails or oars, and set it adrift. The other part that's faulty is just sending them adrift in a boat does not automatically guarantee their death. They could have easily been intercepted by another boat, rescued, or land on a nearby island and, and be rescued in that way. The third reason is that everything was made by hand in those days. It took a long time to make a boat or a ship because supposedly there were many people in this, in this boat. So this is a small ship. So to make that and then to set it adrift with the idea of just executing somebody, that's a pretty costly way to do it rather than just stoning them. But in any event, the tradition says that these three, along with a man called Maxima, it's spelled Maximin, but in the south of France, it's pronounced Maxima. He was reportedly one of the 72 sent out by Jesus. We're not sure about that, but he was uh, definitely a, a priest. He had been ordained a priest. And then an, another woman called Mary Jacobe, that's how she's described in the south of France, but she's also described as the wife of Clopas. Well, Clopas was the younger brother of Joseph, the most chaste spouse of the Blessed Virgin. So Mary, Mary Jacobi, or Mary of Clopas, was the sister-in-law of Mary who was there under the cross with the Blessed Mother um, at, at Calvary. Another woman that's described here is Mary Salome. Generally, she's just called Salome because she's the wife of Zebedee. She's the mother of James and John, and she too was at the, under the cross. So they would have known each other, so it's logical that they would try to escape together. The, the last person in the group was Sidonius, and he's described as the blind man healed by Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, Sidon is a city in the north of Israel, so he may have been from that area, or maybe one of his relatives was originally from that area. So the voyage itself, if they departed in the year 44 AD, they would have set out from Caesarea 
which is the only Roman port in Judea that was uh, built by the Romans and, and strengthened by Herod the Great. And their voyage to the south of France would be 1,700 miles. It would take 30 days with that type of conveyance, and they would have to stop for food and water in several places. And we know from the tradition that their final destination was the city of Phocia, which we call today Marseille, Marseille, France. So here's the route they would have taken. They would have gone by sea, they would have gone past Rome, and they would have landed here in the south of France, which wasn't called France at the time, it was called Provincia Romana. So who is Mary? We know in scripture, there's Mary the sinful woman, there's Mary of Bethany, and there's Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene. These three identities have been debated for centuries and different opinions exist even today. So let's look at scripture. A Pharisee invited him to dine with him. A Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now there was a sinful woman in the city who learned that he was at table in the house of the Pharisee. Bringing an alabaster flask of ointment, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus said to him in reply, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus continued, Two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days wages and the other owed 50 since they were unable to repay the debt, he forgave it for them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon said in reply, the one, I suppose, whose larger debt was forgiven. He said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your house, you did not give me water for my feet, but she has bathed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she has not Stop, she has not ceased kissing my feet since the time I entered. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. The others at table said to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace. Now, that's from Luke chapter 7, and he never identifies the sinful woman who anoints the Lord. Now, in Luke chapter 8, he writes, afterward, he, meaning Jesus, journeyed from one town and village to another, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Accompanying him were the twelve and some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Husa, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. So Luke identifies Mary Magdalene as a follower of the Lord. As they continued their journey, he entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha, and she welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary, who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, 
Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. That's from Luke chapter 10. And Luke identifies Mary, the sister of Martha, as a follower of the Lord. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, a leper, Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster jar of costly perfumed oil and poured it on his head while he was reclining at table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant and said, why this waste? It could have been sold for much and the money given to the poor. Since Jesus knew this, he said to them, why do you make trouble for the woman? She has done a good thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this perfumed oil upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Amen, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her. So Matthew does not identify the woman who anoints the Lord. And in Mark chapter 14, we read something very similar. When he was in Bethany, reclining at table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of perfume oil, costly, genuine spikenard. She broke the alabaster jar and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant. Why has this been uh, this waste of perfumed oil? It could have been sold for more than 300 days wages and the money given to the poor. They were infuriated with her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anticipated anointing my body for burial. Amen, Amen. I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Mark states that a woman from Bethany will be remembered for the anointing of the Lord. And then John in chapter 11 writes, Now a man was ill, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So John establishes that Mary of Bethany was the woman who anointed the Lord. And then John chapter 12, we read, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served while Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary took a liter of costly perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then Judas the Iscariot, one of his disciples and the one who would betray him said, why was this oil not sold for 300 days wages and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and held the money bag and used to steal the contributions. So Jesus said, leave her alone. Let her keep this for the day of my burial. So John restates that Mary of Bethany was the woman who anointed the Lord. And then in John chapter 19, he writes, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. So John identifies Mary Magdalene as being at the foot of the cross. And on the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know is John, and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned home. But Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said, to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and what he told her. So John identifies Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So, Mary Magdalene. John's gospel identifies her as the woman who anointed Jesus and the woman at the tomb. Jesus in Mark's gospel speaks of her as being remembered for all times because of what she has done, the anointing. And she is identified as the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The traditional Catholic understanding until the late 20th century is that Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, and the sinful woman are the same person. Pope Gregory's famous homily in the year 591 conflated Mary of Bethany with Mary of Magdalene, but traditions had made that connection centuries before his homily. Some objections today center on the two home locations of Mary. Now, I've thought about this long and hard. And Mary Magdalene has demons driven out of her, and she encounters Jesus in the north, and and Magdala is on the Sea of Galilee. Now, she could have been known by where she was living, but she maybe was the sister of Martha and the sister of uh, Lazarus. If, because we know that in Scripture, she begins to become a follower of Jesus, and Jesus works his way down from Galilee toward Jerusalem. Her sister and brother live in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. It's quite possible Mary Magdalene may have taken Jesus to their house, and they offered hospitality, and 
they may have reaccepted her because they saw of her conversion. I've heard people talk about, I've read a, a, a recent uh, critical assessment of the two locations thing, and this person wrote that the figures of the speech of the time were like this and like this and like that. And I'm thinking that's not all that convincing to me because I know people who write one way and then another way and then yet another way. They don't follow the rules of writing quite so strictly as that. And I doubt if people at this time, most of whom were illiterate, did either. So I don't see that the two locations necessarily um, disqualifies her from being the same woman. However, the Eastern Orthodox Church maintains that Mary Magdalene went with our mother Mary to Ephesus and died there. But the Apostle John makes no mention of this in his gospel, not in his three epistles or the book of Revelation. So everything that he left in writing does not say that Mary Magdalene went with our blessed mother. And Father Hugh Pope, writing in the year 1910 in the Catholic Encyclopedia, stated, is it credible in the view of all this, the anointing, that this Mary of Bethany should have no place at the foot of the cross, nor at the tomb of Christ, yet it is Mary Magdalene, according to all the evangelists, who stood at the foot of the cross and assisted at the entombment and was the first recorded witness of the resurrection. And while St. John calls her Mary Magdalene in different parts of chapter 19 and 20, he simply calls her Mary in chapter 20. So you be the, the, the judge. But now we'll go to the tradition, the second part. So the second part of the tradition tells us that upon the, the arrival off the coast of Provincia Romana, our people in the boat eventually went in different directions, spreading the kerygma or the gospel uh, in, throughout the, the region. And this is what we know from the tradition. Um, Mary Jacobi and Mary Salome, who would have been probably closer in age, and therefore perhaps uh, companions in this, in this journey, uh, landed where they stayed where they first landed, which is a little village that today is called St. Marie's de la Mer, the St. Mary's of the ocean. And that's where they stayed and lived out their days. Uh, Martha went inland up the Rhone River to the, this uh, village of, or city of Avignon, and then a little bit farther north and spread the gospel uh, throughout that region. Maxima and Sidonius went to a place called Villa Lata, where they built a church, and um, and they would later be buried at that place. Mar uh, Lazarus and Mary Magdalene, however, went to the port city of Phocia, and that's what we call Marseille. So let's run through this for each one of these. So the tradition tells us that upon arrival off the coast, the two Marys, Mary Jacobi, Mary Salome, stayed where they landed. And the city that is now called St. Marie's de la Mer has this as their, as their city crest. It's a boat on the ocean with two women in it, each holding a book. Now, presumably that's the gospel, but in reality, the gospel wasn't yet written. The gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew, whichever one was written first, probably wasn't written until at least the year 50. So um, uh, they, they bring the gospel message, and that's simply what the symbol shows. Now, their relics are preserved in what's called a fortified church in this same village that was built around 850. This is a photograph of it. What's a fortified church? 
Well, this area was raided by Saracens, that's Islamic people from North Africa in the 600s, 700s, 800s, and also by Vikings who settled in Sicily at a little later period. And it was raided so often that they fortified the church, they took out the windows, and they put up stone walls. And so it was a place of refuge as well as worship. And so the relics of these two saints are uh, in this church. Now, Martha went up uh, north of Provence to Avignon. She spread the gospel message, and she moved to a little town called Tarascon. And her relics were then preserved at the time of her death. And in 1197 in Tarascon, they built the church of St. Martha, and her relics are in that church. Now, Maxima and Sidonius, uh, they went uh, to the village of Villalata, and Maximin was already recognized when a priest when he arrived, so he set up a small congregation in that village. And Sidonius may have already been ordained, uh, ordained a deacon, uh, but if not, uh, Maxima ordained him a deacon and then later a priest. The first church building they uh, built in Villa Lata later became known as St. Maxim. And Maxima and Sidonius both went then to Ox. On Provence, a city established north of that, and they established a church there that later became the cathedral for the region. Maximin and Sidonius both were interred in a crypt in the earliest church that they had built at St. Maxim around 70 or 80 AD. And Lazarus and his sister Mary went to Focio, uh, the seaport city. In Focio, uh, Lazarus founded the first church there. He had it constructed. He preached to the residents, uh, Maxima may have ordained him, and the sailors uh, who frequented the city. And there was many sailors who came into that uh, port of call for a short period of time. And so Lazarus and Mary uh, preached to them. Tradition tells us that he was martyred in that church. And some years later, some of his relics were transferred to the cathedral church that had been built in the city of Ox. Now, Mary Magdalene preached the gospel and shared her experiences of the Lord with the townspeople and all who arrived in the seaport. In this way, she's a little bit like St. Paul in that she's spreading the word, but whereas Paul went from city to city to city, and then others went out from there, continuing to spread the word, she spoke to people who were passing by. And so they took the word and, and took it farther into the empire. But after she had evangelized for some time, she began to yearn for a quiet and contemplative life. She wanted to be with her Lord. And so she wanted to be away from the problems of the world and peaceful communion. So she began to search for a place where that could become her lasting retreat. And she crossed the plains and she came to the ridge of mountains north of Axon Provence. And she found in these mountains, in the mountain faces, some caves. And she moved into one of these caves which later became known as Les Saint-Boam, the Holy Cave. And there she lived the contemplative life for 30 years. And after 30 years, she knew it was time to go to the Lord. So she left the cave and came down into the valley and sought out her old friend, Maxima. And when she saw him, he gave her Holy Communion, that is, Holy Viaticum, and the anointing of the sick. And she died. 
And then she was buried in a crypt that existed under the church that Maximum had built in that village. And it was built on top of an old Roman mausoleum. And so she was buried in, in a crypt of this a mausoleum, and not too long afterward, Maximum and then Sidonius would be interred with her. Okay, time for the tradition. Third part. This tells us that the presence of Mary Magdalene in Provence continues to build faith and reverence from the Lord, or for the Lord, even to the to this day. So after her passing, the faith brought by the saints of Bethany—that's all those who were in the boat—to Provincia Romana creates fertile ground for the missions that followed. A man who was, became a bishop named Pontius, uh, he, he came from Western Asia, what we now call Turkey. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he's only two people removed from Jesus and teaching. And Pontius was sent into this region and he established a church in the village of Logdunum, which we now call Lyon. So it's Lyon, France, that's where he established this church. It's on the Rhone River, just farther inland uh, from, from uh, Provence. And Pontius was called to Rome in the year 177 because the emperor Marcus Aurelius was becoming quite upset with these followers of Jesus. Um, he didn't understand what they believed and he became very suspicious of them. So he called Pontius to Rome to explain, but it was not a debate. It was instead um, an arrest, uh, no trial, and an execution. So Pontius was martyred in Rome in 177. And just before he left to go to Rome, a man by the name of Irenaeus, who had also come from Western Turkey, from the Syria region actually, uh, he, he came from, he was the Bishop of Smyrna. He came to this region uh, to work with Pontius, and he became the, uh, the Bishop of Logdunum, or Lyon, as it's now called. A very pious woman, uh, Baldina, very pious woman of, uh, and a courage uh, along the model of Mary Magdalene, was savagely martyred um, by the Romans in the city of Logdunum in the year 177. Irenaeus escaped that uh, tribulation, um, and he successfully uh, resisted the heresy of Gnosticism throughout Provence by writing Against All Heresies, a famous book, five volumes of books, actually, uh, and, and he issued that. And some traditions say that he was martyred in 202, but there's no um, details of it, not where or how. So the church that uh, Maximin had built in Villa Lata uh, was a small affair. And in 1995, they did an excavation next to it, just archeological dig, and they discovered a baptistry that had been built there. Well, pilgrimages to St. Maxim and the tomb of Mary Magdalene attracted many people throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, people from the Italian peninsula, which is not far away, from Germania and across Provence or the south of France. The little town of St. Maxim did not justify such a large church and baptistry considering the local population alone. So there must have been something special about it. And of course, we know what it was. It's the tomb of Mary Magdalene. Now, around the year 450 AD, the Roman Empire finally collapses and Burgundian warriors, Burgundy is a region of France, but they were at that time pagans. 
They're to the north of Provencia Romana. They invade and they burn the churches, and they destroy shrines and they burn cities and they just cause a big mess. And the crypts of Mary Magdalene and the others were covered with sand to protect them. And, and then all who knew where they were died. And so nobody was quite sure where these tombs were. In the year 520, religious hermits began to move into the caves of Les Saint-Béome, uh, the same way that Mary Magdalene did. And eventually they will build monasteries into the walls. And you see photographs of that here. And in this cave, you see a beautiful sanctuary with um, an altar. Now, in the 700s, Saracens, that's Islamic warriors from North Africa, began to raid the towns and the seaports along Provence, and that included the area that we're talking about. And once again, church buildings and towns were burned. That's when the, um, the fortified church was built in St. Marie de la Mer. So people were murdered, commerce was interrupted, but the mystical church could not be damaged in this land. Charles II of Anjou, Anjou is a region in the northwest of France, but he was also the king of Naples. He had heard about the tomb of Mary Magdalene and he wanted to find it. So he, in 1279, he sent workers to go find it. And they went to the area of St. Maxim and they began to probe around the church and they uncovered the crypts. They excavated them. And when they opened one of the crypts, they found a tablet and a parchment testifying to the fact that it was the crypt of Mary Magdalene and it was dated 710 AD. So here's uh, almost 600 years, um, the, the tomb has been covered and forgotten and now they rediscover it. So Charles II had the crypts excavated and restored and he discovered the crypts of Maxima and Sidonius right next to them and then several other contemporaries of Mary Magdalene in the same place. So he decided to construct a basilica church over the site, a much larger church, which would be known as the Basilica of Mary Magdalene in the village now known as St. Maximum La Semboam. And this was in 1295. Now, once the crypt had been found and identified, pilgrims began to arrive. And not just regular people, but people from quite a distance. Catherine, St. Catherine of Siena made a pilgrimage here. St. Jane de Chantel made a sacrament here. And St. Bridget of Sweden also arrived. Besides them, secular heads, King Francois I of France made a, made a pilgrimage here. And Catherine de' Medici of the famous Italian uh, power family made a pilgrimage here as well. So about the same time, around 1295, Pope Boniface VIII assigned the Dominicans, the Dominican order, to be stewards of the shrine, which is the church and the cave of Mary Magdalene. And that's when these uh, buildings were built into the cave, uh, which is essentially a monastery for the Dominicans. The Basilica Church that had been started was never finished, however, when the Black Death, that is the, the plague, swept through the region in the year 1348. And it persisted for several years after that. And more than 50% of the people in this region died from the Black Death. So the church was never finished. And this is what you see at the one end of the church. During the French Revolution, the sacristan took the skull of Mary Magdalene and hid it in his house until the Fuhrer was over. And we know that during the French Revolution, many of the uh, atheistic revolutionaries 
took out their vengeance on the church. They burned churches, and they came here and they attempted to burn this church as well. So the church was damaged, and it was restored in the year 1814, and then consecrated anew in 1822, and Mary Magdalene's relics were returned to the sarcophagus. This is what the church looks like today. It's not exactly a a marvel of Gothic architecture, mostly because it was unfinished. There are no twin spires. Those were never built for the bell towers. There's no spire at the back of the church, and and, and the, the ends of the church is not complete, and a lot of the details in the exterior wall were never finished. The buttresses were added later to keep the make the church stable. Inside, however, the church is much more uh, finished and much more beautiful. And in 1859, the Dominicans once more were restored as custodians of the church and the shrine. And what we see in this photo is the nave, and we also see the elevated ambo. And the ambo, of course, is where the homilists will deliver the message. And in this case, they would walk up the stairs, climb up into this thing, and then speak to the to the uh, to the people from above. And this is how things were done before electronic amplification. Now, in the in the church, there is a reliquary right by the altar, which contains the skull of Mary Magdalene. It's it's a golden reliquary. It's typically kept near the tabernacle. This is what it looks like. Typically, it looks like it does on the left, but that gold faceplate can be removed, and you see the skull of Mary Magdalene is within. Now, on July 22nd, every year, which is the feast day of St. Mary Magdalene, in this, from this church, a procession is conducted through the streets of St. Maximin la Saint-Bohème, and they carry the golden reliquary to the people. And many of the population wear traditional clothing of Provence. Here we see a drum and fife corps, and the men are wearing the traditional black hats, black vests, and white trousers that were typical of the 19th century. And the women also wore black hats, but always wore uh, white bonnets, uh, uh, lace bonnets underneath the hats, and they have the traditional dresses. And you can see them here proceeding toward the entry into the church. Now, in 1975, scientific evaluation of the relics of Mary Magdalene were performed. The skull, some vertebrae, and a portion of a tibia were examined. The bones were determined to be from a Middle Eastern woman who was in her late 50s or early 60s. That works out pretty close to the age she would have been when she came back to St. Maxima for Holy Viaticum. And a sample of hair found in the reliquary was determined to be from a woman of Jewish ancestry. So Mary Magdalene was declared a saint by universal acclamation. That was before there was the the process of canonization. So she was automatically a saint. Her memorial was designated as July 22nd, uh, sometime after the year 500. And she has been referred to as the apostle to the apostles as early as the 10th century. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote about her in those terms, and so did many others. And in the Tridentine Mass, the old Latin Mass, her reading came from Luke, while in the Novus Ordo Mass, the Mass we typically celebrate, the reading is from John. In 2016, her memorial was raised to a feast day. St. Mary Magdalene, pray for us. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, 
Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.